0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Well, good to see you this morning, church family. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Do me a favor if we could here, if you have any seats between you, kind of scoot in a little bit, free up some outside edges uh, for some folks that are coming in. So good to be with you this Sunday morning. Hope you're doing well. We are going to be in a new series starting Now, uh, the book of Haggai, so if you have a Bible with you, I would love to invite you to turn with me to the book of Haggai, if you don't have a a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat somewhere in front of you, Haggai, some of y'all just blessed me because you thought I sneezed, Um, it's not that at all, Haggai is a, one of your minor prophets there towards the end of your Old Testament, the way you're going to find that if you're unfamiliar with Haggai, it's going to be that section of very clean white pages in your Old Testament, they're, they're stuck together. That's where you'll find that. You've never been in it. Uh, even though this is a small book, it's only two chapters. It's a total of 38 verses. And even though it was written 2,600 years ago, the fact is, is that this book is going to serve us well to point us to Jesus. To remind us of what his kingdom priority is all about to help re- recalibrate our hearts and our minds, our beliefs, our commitments to what it means to live for his kingdom, a people liberated and redeemed not to build in our own kingdom but to build into his. Now, in order to really kind of understand Haggai, you can't just kind of jump in. There's a, there's a backstory to what's going on here that we need to catch up on just a little bit. Uh, at the time that Haggai comes in as, as the Lord's prophet, We're about 800 to 1,000 years after the Exodus by the time this book comes along here. Um, And we've got a divided kingdom. If you remember, David, um, after he passed away, his son Solomon took over the the throne of Israel. And then after Solomon, after he died, the kingdom was divided between his two sons. And one would take the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was, was Judah. It's a divided kingdom. And so it's about 800 to 1,000 years after the Exodus. That we're here. And if you if you go back right after the Exodus, God made a promise with his people. One, he promised that, in terms of a Mosaic covenant, that he would never leave his people, no matter what would happen. However, he said to them: if you forsake me, and if you decide at some point to leave me and to go back to foreign idols like you did before Egypt, it is not going to go well with you. You're going to be recaptured and re-enslaved all over again to a bondage and a captivity uh, because of your idolatry, just like what led you into uh, Egypt to begin with. And and God called that shot 800,000 years before it would actually happen again. And so as Israel is divided, first comes the northern kingdom, their idolatry, their wickedness. The northern kings are awful. And so God allows the Assyrians to come in in 722 BC and totally ransack Israel, the northern kingdom. Takes them captive and will rule over them for the next 130 years. Until the southern kingdom starts falling into their idolatry and then in 586 BC the Babylonians are going to come in under Nebuchadnezzar and they're going to they're going to take out the Assyrians first and they will assume control of the northern part of Israel. And they'll also take out Judah, the southern kingdom. And so the Babylonians will own all of the Jews, and they will haul them off 900 miles away to the Babylonian capital where where they will live there for the next 50 years in bondage. I mean, think about that for just a moment. That would be like a foreign army coming in here into the city of Dallas today and just decimating the entire city of Dallas destroying this very gathering place where we are in here this morning, destroying everything and then taking us and hauling us 900 miles away to Flagstaff, Arizona to live there for the next 15 years. God help us, all right? (laughs) 50 years in captivity. And you don't have the freedom now to worship like you once did. Your God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, his name has been defiled. And the pagan God of the Babylonians is being worshiped and then what happens though is 50 years later 539 bc the persians come in and they knock off the babylonians i mean it's like a giant national game of king of the hill it's just one empire knocking off the next empire and the persians assume control there in babylon and the persians as they're ruling they are a lot more religiously tolerant than the babylonians were and so they issue a decree that any jew who wants to can actually go return to Jerusalem, and they can rebuild if they want. They're going to be ruled over Persia, but you can go back if you want to. And so 50,000 Jews take them up on that offer, and they will head back to rebuild. And those that don't go, which in fact was the vast majority of people, they had now assimilated into Persia and were actually comfortable there. And so they stayed. If you want to read about them, you can read about them in the book of Esther. But for the 50,000 that go back, you're gonna see three phases of rebuilding. A man named Zerubbabel, who is gonna be the governor. He can't be king because the Persians are king, but he can be governor, he's gonna go back to Jerusalem. He's gonna help rebuild the temple of God. That's what we're gonna see in Haggai. They're gonna rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, he's gonna help rebuild the city, specifically the wall. And so he's gonna take a group and they're gonna go get the wall rebuilt as a defense uh, around Jerusalem. And then Ezra, he's going to rebuild the people. He's going to rebuild the people. And so you see these three movements. But we're going to drill down here on Zerubbabel. And so starting in 536 B.C., the rebuilding of the temple begins under the headship of Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest. The temple was of first importance because this is where the glory of God dwelt. For 50 years, it's been in shambles and the name of God has been the laughingstock of the nations. And so they get back to work to rebuild this temple so the glory of God can once again dwell and be manifest. And, and they, no sooner do they get started on the building of the temple, persecution will set in. The neighboring Samaritans don't like the idea that these Jews are back and are worshiping Yahweh. And so they start filing complaints with Persia. And they start asking the king of Persia to do something about this. Don't let them rebuild this because if they rebuild this temple, they're going to worship Yahweh. And if they worship Yahweh, they're going to disrespect you and they're ultimately going to rebel against you. And if you're not going to do anything about it, then we're going to do something about it. And so they start breathing these threats down, and the Jews get afraid. Ezra tells us that they just get paranoid, they get scared, and they quit working. For the next 15 years, they will halt on God's temple. And they will instead start going and building their own houses while the Lord's house lies in ruins. Fifteen years passes by before God will send in a prophet by the name of Haggai who is going to deliver four messages to these people. The first one we'll look at this week is kingdom priority. He's going to talk to them about the fact that God has not saved, redeemed, and liberated you and brought you out of the exodus and brought you into this new freedom so that you can invest in your own kingdom. He liberated you so that you can worship him and build into his kingdom. Next week, we'll see the second message, which is kingdom perspective. He's going to speak directly to the older generation who was around back in the day when Solomon's temple stood in its glory. And now these older folks are looking upon it like it's a heap of rubble. This will never look like it did back in our day. And so they start getting discouraged, and they start choking out the zeal of the next generation, and they all quit building again. And so Haggai's going to talk to them about a kingdom perspective that you're building into something bigger than you can see here that's even greater through the front windshield, anything that you can imagine through the rearview mirror, and get them back to work. And then there's going to be a third message of that of kingdom purity. Once the people get back to work, they're building this holy temple for a holy God, and they assume that because they are building it into something holy, that makes them holy. Because they're touching holy stones, that makes them holy. And Haggai's going to come in with a message from the Lord going, no, 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 that's not how it works. Uh, Righteousness is not transmitted by osmosis here. You don't just grab it and become righteous. In fact, it works the opposite. If you're a sinful, fallen human being, anything you touch is going to get defiled. No, you need a righteousness that is not your own. Not one that comes by your works, but one that comes by God's grace. And that will be kingdom purity. And then we'll see a fourth message, that of kingdom promise. The fact is, this physical temple they are building is actually representative of the eternal temple that will one day come through the Messiah. And you're building into a work that is greater than you can even fathom right now. So get back to work. And so that's where we're going to head. But kingdom priority, right out of the gate here, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, you get a lot of details that a lot of us tend to skip over in our Bible study, but there is gold and then there are hills. And so. Verse 1, the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month of the first day of the month. There is a lot of places in Scripture where we have to kind of generalize or speculate about when this happened. We think we have an idea of when the exodus was. We think we have an idea of when Abraham existed. We we think we have the idea of Jesus' actual birth. But there are some places in Scripture where we don't have to think or guess. We know. And not only here do we know the exact Year, we know the exact month, we know the exact day this happened. August 29th, 520 BC, was the second year of Darius the king's six-month first day. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, and it comes to two people here, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. I just want to mention that's the only place where my name's going to show up right there. It's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to take it. He speaks to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Governor of Judah, as well as Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Two different figures there. One is the governor, Zerubbabel. And here's what's fascinating about Zerubbabel. Prior to their Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel was in line to be the next king of Judah. But because they got captured, he'll never get that opportunity to be king. The best he can be is a governor under Persian rule. However, if you know your gospels... Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. When you read from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, guess whose name is in that genealogy? Zerubbabel. He's going to be one of the progenitors of the Messiah. God is not done with him yet. But he writes to him, and he also writes here to uh, Joshua, the high priest, whereas Zerubbabel is the political figure, Joshua, the high priest, is the spiritual leader. He's the mediator between God and Jesus his people and and notice there in verse 2 God is going to come out of the gate with his perspective on the people's excuse for why it is that they had quit working listen to what God says here through Haggai about these people thus says the Lord of hosts these people now I'm gonna stop right there notice what God does not call them doesn't say my people. doesn't say the beloved people. doesn't say the covenant people of Israel. No, in this moment, they are these people. This is what happens five, six days a week when I come home from work and my wife's standing there with her youngest daughter and she says, do you know what your daughter just did? <laughs> it's a tip-off when her name's not included in this, that this child's sin is being aligned with me somehow <laughs> in this moment. Your, your daughter of yours Right? Well, these people, they say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, Ezra tells us right here, their excuse is that they were afraid because persecution set in and the work of building the temple got too hard because they had too many people around them that were threatening them if they continued with this work, and so they quit. We need to be careful because there's a dangerous theology that can creep in here, and that is the belief that because if something is too hard, if something is too difficult, ergo, it must not be God's will for me. Because of course God would want me to be happy. Of course God's will for me is that life would be easy and smooth. And if it's not, then there must be something wrong with His with with His will in this moment. And so I need to quit. And we've got to be careful of that. That's a, that's a dangerous theological interpretation that God wants that in order for it to be his will. Now, oftentimes, God's will includes suffering, includes persecution, includes difficulty, and he empowers us to persevere and have the courage to keep going. But they do not right here. And so the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And I want you to notice the sarcasm in God's response to the people for why it is they say it's not time. He says in verse 4, well, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You can take the word time there and you can circle it in verse 4 and then circle the word time in verse 2 and connect them. This is God playing sarcastically off their excuse. They say, oh, it's not time, God. A little too hard, a little hot outside, persecution's heating up too, We're going going to go back to our own house. It's not time for your house. And really, God goes, oh. Okay, so it's not time for you to build into my kingdom. Oh, but it is time for you to build into yours. Oh, it's not time for you to build up my house that's in rubble. But instead, you're going to go build in your house. There's sarcasm here. Now, here's the deal. It's not that God is anti-house. It's not that God wants these people living naked out in the wilderness while they're putting together the temple. That's not what God's desire is here for these people in this moment. There is a key word in here in verse four that if you were a Jew reading this, this would utterly catch you off guard. It's the word paneled. It's not that they were just building their houses. They were paneling their houses. We're going to find out in verse eight, this was a paneling that came from cedar wood. Now, that's a big deal to a Jew because if you grew up in Jerusalem, you know this. Israel is not a woodworking community. They are a stone-building community. And in fact, if you go there today, there's still a law today around Jerusalem, around the Temple Mount. You can't build a building unless it's built out of the white limestone that's used there. The, the most trees you had is some olive trees, some acacia wood trees. You're not paneling houses out of this. You don't have giant sequoias or big timber of pine and cedar. If you wanted that wood that's being described here, the nearest place that you could go to get it is you had to go all the way up north, go outside of Israel, up into, at that time was Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon. And you would have to expend a tremendous amount of energy, and resources to cut down those trees to fabricate that wood and then to take it all the way back down to Jerusalem so that you can ship in Joanna your home all day long. (laughs) Like that's what's going on right here. A tremendous amount of energy is being exerted here and so countless hours, countless energy, countless amounts of money and resources to trick out your own home, to protect your own comfort, to build up your name and your kingdom meanwhile your work for my kingdom, which, by the way, is a kingdom that will last for all eternity, unlike your paneled houses, which will be here today and gone tomorrow, it's all but ceased. And my house and my name and my kingdom are lying in shambles over here. It has become the laughing stock of the nation. So something is not right with this. And so, and so you, need to, you need to understand this. A little timeout, a little theological timeout real quick. The issue here is not an issue of wealth or possessions. Nowhere in the scriptures are owning things condemned. What is condemned is the love of those things. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's it's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. And so this is not an issue of having wealth or owning nice things. Um, It's not what's being... It's being captured right here. It's not the possessions that we own. It's the the possessions that own us. That's the issue. Nor is this uh, an issue of time either. It's not like, well, there's not enough time today. I'm busy. I can't do both things at once. they have the same 15 years as anybody else. This is not a time issue, nor is it also a laziness issue. This isn't an issue of being undisciplined. And I hear this all the time, by the way. You need to know every generation is going to make fun of the generation after them of being lazy. We've all done it. Boomers made fun of the Xers. Xers are made fun of the millennials. And millennials, your time's coming too, all right? You're going to make fun of the next generation after you. They're lazy. They do good for nothing. Here, here's the issue. I've, and I had 15 years in college ministry. I can tell you, the young folks around us, it's not laziness. It's not that they're undisciplined. The issue is they're undisciplined in the wrong areas. They're disciplined in the wrong areas. It's an issue here. Not of wealth or time or laziness. It's an issue of priority. And priority is always an issue of the heart. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I want to know where your heart is, Jesus says, all I have to do is trace the work of your hands. Because the motives of your heart always drive the work of the hands. And God is saying to his people right here, the truth is you care more about your kingdom than you care about my kingdom. And so in verse five, God does a bit of a time out here. God says, let's do a bit of a little life assessment right here on what's been going on. In verse five, he says, consider your ways. Let's see how successful you've been while you have been absolutely committed to your own life these last 15 years. How has it worked out for you? And notice he says, here's what's come about in all your product productivity for yourself. Verse 6, you have sown much and have harvested little. Meaning, you put in a lot of effort into your crops and in order for you to consume and enjoy with tons of expectation, but nothing's come from it. And he goes on to say, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is ever warm. Do you know what's being described right here? It's famine. For the last 15 years, there's been a drought in the land. There has been, there has been a famine that has overtaken the people here, meaning uh, the wheat crop has not come in that you need your food from, the grape crop has not come in that you get your wine from, and the flaxseed crop has not come in where you get your linen from. None of this has come in. There is a famine that's taking place, and so everyone who earns wages only does so to bring them home to a purse that has holes in it. You can't keep whatever comes your way. And the question is, why not? Why has there been a famine in the land? Well, jump over to verse 9. God describes this through Haggai. He tells them, again, you look for much, but behold, it's come to little when you've brought it home. So that they had great wishes, they had great aspirations, great dreams and ambitions for their life and hopes of their future, and nothing's come from it. Why? Because he says, I blew it away. What's your pronoun there? I. God says, I was the one who was behind it. Now, that's, that's an interesting theological point right here. God is behind this. He's saying, I'm the reason that nothing has worked out for you. Now, keep reading. Why, why would that be true? Why would God say that? Well, because, he says, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself, literally the Hebrew word there is runs to his own house. While you have been absolutely and totally committed to your building of your own houses and your own kingdom, I have been personally committing to making sure it does not succeed. That's what God says. You go, whoa, that's harsh. I mean, is this universally true? That You need to be careful. We need to do another theological timeout right here. Because there's a fallacy out there that simply says, well, anytime something bad happens to me, maybe it's simply because I've done something wrong and God's mad at me. Is that universally true? No. Now, are there times when we, by our own rebellion, our own sinful choices, do something, say something, and it has collateral damage that comes back and and brings uh, unwanted suffering upon our life? Absolutely. And is God faithful like a loving Father in that moment to allow that to bring us back to our senses and come home? Absolutely, And you'll see that's what's going on here. But there are many other reasons why we suffer as well, biblically speaking. Sometimes it is our own sin that uh, brings suffering upon us. Sometimes it's the sin of others that victimizes us. Most times, I would argue, it's simply the result of Genesis 3, living in a broken and fallen world where bodies don't work like they should, where, where natural disasters happen and storms happen and take out lives, where, where there is atrocities and calamities that happen that are outside of any of our control that just come from living in a broken, fallen world. So you can't universally say it's always something you've done and God's mad at you. Please fight that lie. I I remember when I was a young pastor having a lady come forth after a service bawling because she didn't know what to do. Her child is walking through cancer, and she's like, did I do something? Now, that's not a weight you need to be carrying right there. It's the same thing that the disciples did with Jesus with a blind man when they went, who made him blind? Was it his sin or his parents? As if those are the only two options. And Jesus goes, it's neither. So the power of God might be demonstrated through this brokenness. And so, so we've got to guard against that. What you need to see here, there is a specific sin that is happening with Israel in this moment out of Deuteronomy 28. Remember a thousand years earlier, after the Exodus? In Deuteronomy 28, God sits the people down and sit, makes a covenant with them through Moses and says, Listen, number one, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But number two, if you depart from me, not only will it be lead your captivity, but I will withhold the rain from your crops. God called that shot a thousand years earlier, and now it's happening. This is a specific national sin. That was prophesied in deuteronomy 28 and it's happening and in this moment god is a loving father allowing this to happen for the explicit explicit purpose of bringing them back to him and that's why in verse 10 and 11 you see the result of deuteronomy 28 therefore the heavens above you have withheld their due The earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. In other words, God has turned the whole earth against them. Not because he's trying to be angry and punitive here, but because as a loving father, he knows that their kingdom drift is not going to lead to their joy. Their greatest joy is is found under their king, Jesus, under king, the eternal Yahweh God, the covenant-keeping God, who is going to lead them into the promise of the new covenant that he's established with them. The, his kingdom purposes is where their joy is found and God is leading them back. And so again, jump back to verse seven. Haggai says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. In other words, spend some time thinking about how things have gone for you and understand this conclusion the worst thing that you can do for your life is be totally committed to it. It's the worst thing that you can do for your life. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron in light of our American dream culture that's around us uh, the, the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Whose happiness? My happiness, dang it! Get off me! And my entitlement. And I will move heaven and earth, whatever I have to do to create this moat around my castle to where nothing can get to me, where there's no suffering, where there's no persecution, where there's no problems, because that's the will of God in my American dream. And that is absolutely, totally counter to what God's purposes are. God's purposes, his economy is not like our economy. His is right side up from ours. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, whoever wishes to save his life, you're going to need to lose it. And whoever loses their life, for their life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, man, you're going to end up saving it. You're going to find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet he loses his soul? I love how C.S. Lewis said this in his work, The Weight of Glory, when he's speaking about our, our zealous desire for cheap pleasure and vain pursuits of self. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And thus God says, consider your ways. And so, what's the answer? What do you do when you find yourself in this spot? What do you do when you finally come to that sobering moment when you realize that you have spent the past several weeks or the past several months, maybe it's been your whole life up to now, pursuing empty, vain things that have paid you nothing for what your heart is searching for? Like, what what do you do? And I'd be honest, in a room this size, I know there's some of us in this room you're just like Israel of old right now. You are hungry, you are thirsty, you are naked, you are famished. You are exhausted because you have been chasing down the vain pursuit of the kingdom of self and it has left you with nothing. If that's you, what do you do? The answer comes in verse 8. Notice what God calls the people to do. I want you to go up to the hills. In other words, I want you to go to the same hills up in Phoenicia and Lebanon. And I want you to bring wood, and I want you to build the house. In other words, I want you to take the same energy, the same time, the same resources that you once poured into your kingdom, and I want you to leverage it for mine so that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, spend your life seeking to magnify my name. Spend your life seeking to magnify my glory, not yours, through your work. In one word, verse 8, is called repentance. It's stopping the direction that you're heading and turning the other way towards God, towards his kingdom. And this is holistic, by the way. This is a change in your affections. It's a change in your belief system about who God is and about your sin. And it's a change in your, in your work of your hands as well. It's holistically here. This is why Jesus speaks to us in Matthew chapter 6, again, verse 33, when he says, Seek first my kingdom, my righteousness. And then all those other things, man, they'll take care of themselves. But seek my kingdom. First, this is what repentance looks like. and So when this happens, I want, you to, I want you to watch in verse 12, jump down to verse 12. What's the response of the people? What would we do in this situation? Look down at verse 12 here. In this moment, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, all 50,000 people in this moment, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God they repented. Obedience sets in. But I want you to notice, this is super important. Where does repentant obedience begin? Look at the end of verse 12. The people feared the Lord. Church, don't miss this. The first act in repentance doesn't begin with your behavior. The first thing they did here is, go grab a shovel go grab the trowel and some mortar and let's get back to work. That's not the first place where they repented. The first place begins in the heart. It begins in your belief about who God is and about your sin. And it begins with a posture of worship. Do you know how? remember how this thing started? Why did they quit to begin with? Because they were afraid. They feared the Samaritans. And so they quit. And now here in repentance... They fear the Lord. Do you know what fear is? Fear, ultimately, is worship. And the worship of anything other than God is idolatry. And because this idolatry didn't start with wealth and resources, the idolatry started in the heart, then repentance must follow the same suit. And it is a transfer of one's worship, ascribing control to this lesser thing, and rightly placing it upon where it ultimately deserves. Only God is worthy of our fears. Only God is worthy of our reverence and our all and our worship. And that's ultimately what repentance is: is worshiping Him above all else. It's the same thing David confessed. Remember in Psalm fifty-one, when David gets busted for adultery with Bathsheba, he's confronted by Nathan, and then he gets broken. And he finally confesses, and what he confesses is. Lord God, in Psalm 51, if all you wanted was burnt offerings and sacrifices, oh, I would have just brought those to you. If that's just what you want is just external sacrifices, great. If all you want, God, is me to show up on Sunday at church and have a 15-minute devotional in the morning, okay, I'll do that. David says that's not what you're after, though, God. What the Lord is after is a broken and contrite heart. And the Lord doesn't refuse that. That's what he's after. And so I want you to notice in verse 13, notice God's response. The moment the people repent, the moment their hearts break in worship. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and they said, I am with you, declares the Lord. What an encouragement. The moment your affections turn to God, there's the promise of his abiding presence. And the truth is, it's never left them. That was part of the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28. I'll never leave you or never forsake you. And he has it, but they sense his nearness now. He is with them. And the same promise has been given to us in our commission. Remember, Matthew 28, where Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And therefore, I want you to go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to go make disciples of them. I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And here's the deal. As you go do that, know this. I'll be with you to the end of the age. The abiding presence of God for his people is unlike anything out there. And I want you to notice in verse 14, once the people's heart is secured, then the hands follow. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, The spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. The spirit of all the remnant of the people. God's grace got them all fired up right now. That's the best motivator, by the way, is the Lord's grace. Legalism can't hold a candle to it. Legalism will get you through for a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe. Grace can compel you all the way to the end. And notice, notice in that moment, they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, True heart change will always have hands that follow and feet that follow. And they get back to work, investing in the Lord's kingdom. And this all happened in verse 15 on the 24th day of the month. 24 days later, just over three weeks, God turns this whole thing around. What a beautiful picture of repentance and reconciliation. And so understand this, church, this this happened 2,600 years ago that these people got back to work rebuilding God's temple. Can I ask you this church? Do we have something that we are building into as well here? Yes, it's not a physical building. It's not a physical temple, it's an eternal one. In Jesus Christ, his kingdom priority of building his church that he has saved us into by his grace and now gives us the unspeakable privilege of going out and spending our days heralding the news of Jesus Christ so that others can be redeemed and brought into this family as well this is the work he's called us to do God is still in the business of rescuing and redeeming of people for his glory and we get to participate in it this is what Christ said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 and 20 in the time that we have left on this planet don't spend it storing up for yourselves treasures of this earth that moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal Instead, spend your life storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thieves can never take away from you. That's why we're here. This reality has changed my life. I know it's changed many of your lives, but I'll tell you who I I saw it in living color with was the life of my brother. How many of y'all, by the way, have older brothers? Anybody? Okay, so you've been to hell. You know that, right? Okay. So. I had two older brothers. One was nine years older than me. One was six years older than me, and they loved to make my life miserable growing up. And uh, one of my old, my oldest brother was a powerlifter, big dude. And I don't know why they just loved every time the old '80s song by Devo called "Whip It" came on. They just loved to chase me around the house with any belt or object they can find. And uh, they also loved playing a game called Houdini. Uh, where they would, uh, my mom was single mom at the time working two jobs. And so they were raising me, <laughs> need counseling. Um, uh, they put, uh, they would tie my hands behind my back in a chair, uh, with all the belt robe, you know, things that they could find. And then they'd take my grandmother's quilts and put it over me, kick the chair over and they'd leave the door and lock it. And I'd be there until my mom got home. I mean, it's how I had to figure out how to get out of it. It's called Houdini. Um, <laughs> In Richardson, we lived right on the edge of a railroad track. They would love to take me out of the shower naked when the train was coming by uh, and put me outside in the front yard so everybody could look at me while they're waiting for the train. Like, this is my brothers. I'll take some therapy. We had any counselors in the house. We'll meet afterwards. Uh, These are my brothers. They're mean little critters. Now, we, we didn't know the Lord. I didn't grow up in a believing home. We didn't know the Lord. At best, we were agnostic. We came from a divorced home, a broken home. And uh, you can imagine the day in 10th grade when I came home after the Lord Jesus Christ had saved me. And I walked in my home, and I let my family know, man, that the blood of Jesus has saved me. And I'll never forget my brothers looking at me and laughing, just laughing at me. And uh, I can even remember a few years later being at one of my brother's houses for Thanksgiving. And he pulled me aside and he goes, hey, you you think Buddhists are going to heaven? And I said, well, David, I said, um, I said, John 14, 6, Jesus said, uh, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So unless they're trusting in Jesus Christ, the answer is no. And he just, he goes, what an idiot you are. How stupid. So narrow-minded. I mean, that's my brothers. And you need to know this. Even though we're about as pagan as all get out in our home, the one thing that my brothers and I were unified on is that we were never going to let happen to us uh, to our kids, what happened to us when we were little. And that is my dad cheated on my mom and left us for another woman. And we grew up without our biological father, and that left a deep scar on all of us. And so we swore that was never going to happen. No matter what, we're going to fight for our marriages. And uh, so you can imagine one day when I get a phone call from my mom. I'm in college, I get a phone call saying, hey, your brother your brother uh, just told me that his, uh, his wife cheated on him and they're getting a divorce, and they had two little kids. I just remember just going, oh, no, Lord, not again. This generational cycle of divorce and adultery that is in my family, and here it is again. And then it was, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from my brother. He's, again, he's nine years older than me. We didn't have a super tight relationship. He calls me, and he's in tears, and he asked me a question that shook me to my core. He said, "Shay, I don't want to lose my marriage. I don't want to lose my kids. What can your God do to save my marriage? And I went, oh, my, after I wet myself, I went, oh, my God! How do you answer that? So I said, can I come visit with you? So I jump in my truck. I'm driving from, from Denton down to Houston. And I remember, I'm halfway driving there to go meet with my brother and his sister-in-law, and it occurs to me, I'm 20 years old. I'm single. I don't have marriage reconciliation counsel. What am I doing? And I'm trying to recall every Navigator's verse I'd ever memorized as I'm going down there. And I have this serene moment. I get to my brother's house, and I'm sitting there. Right across from me is my brother and his wife, cold as ice, separated. Right next to them on the couch to my right is my dad and then the woman he left us for, the, uh, my stepmother. Oh, this is a sweet marriage picture right here for counsel. And I'm going, oh, what do I say? And honestly, y'all, in probably the worst fumbling gospel job I could ever do, I just looked at my brother and I said, all I know to tell you is this, David. You have worked so zealously hard to try to build a kingdom for yourself. You've got the nice job in Houston. You've got a big house, three-car garage. You've got... Your little boy and your little girl, and you've got Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts, and you've got a nice pool, and you've got all these wonderful things. But you have done what Jesus talked about. You built your house, your kingdom on sand rather than the rock. And so when the storm came, it just decimated everything. All I can, con- all I can compel you to do is to put your trust in Jesus. Build your life upon Him. He is the rock. Build your life upon Him, and He is the God of God who is in the business of making old things new, and he can redeem this. I don't know how, but he can do it. And y'all, I lie to you not, I, I watched in that moment over the course of a couple hours there, my brother and my sister-in-law moved close together and were holding hands by the end of it. That evening, my brother gave his life to Jesus Christ. Within that week, my sister-in-law gave her life to Jesus Christ. Now I'm gonna tell you, the road ahead was a total mess. But they hung in there and by God's grace reconciled that marriage and healed them. And they're still together this day. And by transferring their trust to Jesus, he renewed their entire priority. All their value systems shifted. The trajectory of their life shifted. God did something even crazy, and this is like beyond anything, but my brother ended up walking away from his job and actually goes into vocational ministry and then later plants a church. And I'm going, what the heck? This is not my brother. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the end goal there. It's, I mean, of course not. But now today, what my brother and his sister-in-law do, they started a, a marriage reconciliation ministry. It's a global ministry and they spend their days taking specifically couples who are at their last end of their rope because of adultery and are about to have a, a divorce and they do marriage reconciliation with them and couples all over the world in that. God is using them to restore and redeem. And y'all, that's a, it's a beautiful picture, and, and I'm grateful for it. It's messy. It's not that clean. It's messy. But nonetheless, what I want us to see here in Haggai, it's all about kingdom priority. It's about the dangers of misplacing our priority and assuming that this life, this liberation you've had and your salvation with Jesus is really for your own kingdom gain. It's about his kingdom. And if you find yourself in a place where you are experiencing kingdom drift, can I just encourage you from Haggai, one, consider your ways. Examine your motives. Examine the mirage that you've been living for. And then holistically repent. A change in belief, a change in heart, a change in hands. Receive the grace that God has for you in this. The pain and the suffering is His grace to bring you back to Him and then get back to work. And let's keep going. And this is all the more important as we launch out in three weeks from today as Northway Church. We want to be a church that is about kingdom priority, not about self-priority. Whether it's our home groups or, or gospel communities now, whether it is whether it's our children's ministry or student ministry, whether it's on college campuses or in the home or in the workplace, whether it's local or whether it's global in mission, whatever it is, we want to be a people who exist to bring glory to God by making disciples, by serving his kingdom purpose with the ultimate aim that all the people that we minister to here in Dallas, Texas, and to the ends of the earth, that we could see them encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus Christ, because it is in his kingdom that our greatest joy is found. Amen, church. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 30 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.